Hey, y'all, this is Sarah back with our first bonus episode of the new season. And oh boy, we are starting out strong with Tara Lynn Fox, who you just heard from at the beginning of our Les Pierre's episode. Tara's a renowned New Orleans entertainer who's been winning titles across the country for quite literally decades. Miss Gay Louisiana, 1992, Miss Gay Mississippi, 1994, Miss Tennessee Continental, 1996, Miss Essence International Classic, 2014, Miss Daytona Beach Continental Elite, 2006, and Miss Continental Elite 2016. In a rare occurrence for cruising, Terrell came to us for an interview at our New Orleans Airbnb. And though Rachel and I both have no memory of this whatsoever, or I would like to believe we would have done something about it, we have a lot of table tapping on this tape. If you can't stand that, I understand. And this is not the bonus episode for you, unfortunately. But because Terrell is so lovely and such a valuable resource into New Orleans nightlife, we simply have to share her full interview with you anyway. So here it is. Enjoy. Hi, I am Terrilyn Fox. I'm a native of New Orleans, born and raised here. My pronouns are she, her, hers. Um, I am familiar with Les Pierre's. I'm not going to remember the years because so much has transpired in my life, but I remember working for them. They opened the club because back in that time, there weren't many black clubs and especially black clubs for women. So that was their reasons for opening Les Pierre's. And I remember doing shows there on occasions because the lesbian love, they love the drag queens as we were called back then. And they would invite us to come perform, you know, at their club for special events and things like that. Do you remember um, when you first went to the club, like your your impression of it? Actually, it was a very nice club. It was very small because I'm not sure if you're familiar with the clubs in New Orleans, but they're very, very small. They're not like like Studio 13s and things like that in New York or what have you. But they're very small. It was a very quaint bar. I remember it having one way in and one way out. What kind of crowd was there? Why would people go there? Like what kind of a, was it a dancing place? Was it? Well, it was a dance club and it also was a place where certain times of day you can go to socialize, a very quiet, intimate setting, you know, so you can have conversations. And then at a time there would be, it would change from that setting as it get later on in the evening or the night, it became a dance club where a lot of the black gays would go at that time. Because if I recall, there was still a lot of segregation back in that time. So there was your black bars and there were your white bars. And your, most of your white bars were held in French quarters or on, um, what is that street? Rampart Street. So that's where mostly all of your white clubs were. And there was Charlene's, which was a lesbian club, also on Elysian Fields. And there's also, as time went on, there was one called the Ruby Fruit Jungle, but they were mostly your white lesbians would um, frequent those places. You know, they would invite us over to do shows, but the majority of them would be your white lesbians. Um, you rarely saw, you know, um, a large number of black lesbians, you know, and I always question where were they, whether they socialize, you know, because... Um, I didn't see them out there very often at all. 
I don't know if they had gatherings at their homes and, you know, or things like that. Um, I'm not really sure. And I think I never really had a conversation to see why they opened that particular club called Les Pierre's, but I'm thinking it's because there weren't many places for black lesbians to gather. So I think that could have been her motive for establishing Les Pierre's. So when would you say the bars became more mixed, integrated around here. I remember working at the Oz and this entertainer by the name of Lisa Bowman. She saw me, I don't remember where she saw me, I guess maybe in the streets away, and she invited me to start working at the Oz. And so I started working at the Oz, but I would think maybe in, it had to have been the late 80s, no, it could have been the early 90s, I would think. You know, because at that time, blacks weren't allowed in the clubs. And if they were allowed in the club, they were asked for three and four IDs for admissions. Um, and then once you were allowed to get into the black club, you had to make a stop at the bar because they made you bar drink as soon as you walk into the club. I remember um, there was this club that was on Burgundy Street was called the Annex at that time, where a lot of the black gays gathered at that time. And also the Bourbon Pub also gave us a night, and they called it Black Night, which was Thursday night. So a lot of the black or African-Americans would go out at that particular time to their clubs. Before then, like I said, you know, we weren't allowed in the clubs too often. So we would go. There was this park called Armstrong Park. And this is Armstrong Park. This was where the black clubs were. And this was what the French Quarter. So a lot of the blacks would walk to Armstrong Park to get to the other side to walk into the quarter. But you would see them just hanging out in the corners. You rarely saw them in the bars. You would hang out in the corners and stuff, you know. Um, but I remember when I started working in uh, at the Oz, it was very difficult because they thought I was like becoming white, which I couldn't understand. And they was calling me white chocolate and like, girl, and I was too white to be black and too black to be white. And it was very difficult for me to be accepted into the white bars. But eventually I did. And as time went on, you know, in the, the, my black supporters started coming into the club and they would tell me the problems or this and they had to get three IDs to get in and all this kind of stuff. So I had to speak up, you know, well, what's this all about? You know? And so once we got that, um, cleared up, they were allowing more blacks to come in. And to my understanding today, the majority of the cast at the odds now is predominantly black, you know? So I guess you can say I was kind of one to break down that barrier, you know, and you still wanted to work there, even though it was kind of like at first ostracizing. I had to, I, I had to, I had to prove a point not only to myself, but also to break down that barrier. You know, um, just give us an opportunity, you know, to show what we are capable of. Can you tell us about your drag career? You know, it's really hard to say because I don't think I ever did drag. I think I just, I was just myself, yeah, because I never. Consider myself to be um, a drag queen, and because that that just oh, that just did something to me, you know. 
But my characters on Illusions, I did a lot of Dinah Ross, I did Whitney Houston, I did Dionne Warwick, and Jodie Watley at the time. But of course, when I worked for Lesbians, I was able to do anything by a black woman I was able to do, so I didn't have to just be um, confined to just doing those particular characters. But basically, when I worked in the clubs, and they wanted to see those characters out of me and from me. So what would you do at Lesbians? Oh, my God. I would do, like, at that time, I think Regina Bell was very popular. Um, Angela Winbush was very popular. Melba Moore. Well, I don't know if you heard this song called Other Side of the Rainbow. Those songs were very popular at that time. Um, and it was this one song. I can't remember um, the artist's name, but it was um, Love That Makes a Woman. I can't remember the artist's name, but that was one of the popular songs as well. What was the crowd like at Les Fears? Like, what, what did you think when you're booking a show there? Like, Oh, I was going to make some money that night. That was Because like I said, they were very supportive, you know, and it still is to this very day. Whenever you go to a show, I have a performance and lesbians and, you know, they're going to love you. They are going to love on you. And I remember just being loved there. You know, um, I felt safe there. You know, I felt very um, the queen, you know, because they would make sure that when I get out the car, someone had my bags and, you know, things like that. And and when I worked on Bourbon Street, which I was one of the first black girls to work on the, up the street on Bourbon, you know, they would advertise us as um, men will be women. It was like just daggers, you know, like because I just felt an attack upon me of my character because that's not who I identified as, but I didn't know how to express who I was at that time. You know, it's only through life experiences that I was able to discover who I am. I've always felt different, but I didn't know how to identify as that. And I remember I, I did not find myself to be um, anything that was anything masculine about me or anything attractive about me as being, quote, being this man. And I remember going to this party and this guy, he was a makeup artist for a local musician here. And I was just sitting in the corner, just like watching everybody have fun. I was just, you know, and he said, come here, I want to show you something. And so he took me to his restroom, his bathroom rather, because it was a tub. And anyway, and he sat me on the toilet and he did my makeup and he put me in the mirror and I just started crying. I just started absolutely bawling because I saw who I was at that time. And that was the takeoff from there. I said, I know I found my authentic self when I saw myself in that mirror. How old were you? I had to have been maybe 19, 20. Why do you think, do you think that that makeup artist just like saw something? I would think so because I remember as a child, I remember I had been maybe maybe like third, fourth, fifth grade, somewhere over that time. And at that time, when you had a parental conference, there was a cloakroom. There was a classroom and there was a little cloakroom where you would hang your boots and your raincoats and all that kind of stuff. And you put your backpacks in this particular room. And when it was a parental conference, while your parents were sitting in the classroom, you sat in the cloakroom. And so I'm listening to this teacher talk to my mother. And she told my mother that she should seek help for her son because he was too nice of a boy to grow up that way. So I'm hearing this and I'm thinking, what the fuck? And I go home and I'm thinking, oh my God, I might have a third arm coming. I'm examining my body thinking I saw, you know, she saw something. 
she saw something. I think when I saw myself in the mirror, I think when I saw myself for the first time as this, this, this beautiful woman, you know, because, you know, from so many years I was just searching, trying to find, because they would always call me a sissy, you know, and all that kind of stuff, or a fag. And I don't think fag was common at that time, but it was always a sissy, you know, and I didn't even know what it was, you know. Um, and I was always very feminine, you know, um, but could not understand. I couldn't, I couldn't understand what it was. And then I was able to say, oh, my God. This is who I am. And so, and at that time, our community of trans women was still very small. You know, it was very, very, so I had to seek out those girls in the community to find, because I always hung with a bunch of gay men. So I had to seek out a whole other community to help me, you know, with this. And so, girl, this is what you do. Here's the doctor you go to see and things like that. So that's what, you know. You knew that trans people existed before you started talking in the mirror. See, I don't know if I would consider or know them to be as trans. Right, right, right. I just thought they were like just gay men or very, you know, effeminate men because I never saw anyone actually dressed fully as a woman. And then when I went to my the first drag show and I saw and I found that circle and it took me to the drag show and I'm like, oh my God, I can do this. I want to do this and see these beautiful women because I would consider them to be women, you know, doing what they do. I did my first, my first show was at Brenda's Club, the other side. That was my first performance. I remember that very well. What was that like? Can you tell us? Oh, it was golf. It was god awful. You know? But like, thank God I was pretty though, you know? How did you get the gig? Well, because I, there was a bunch of gay guys that, you know, that I hung with who did drag. And and the thing about it, when I hung out with these gay guys, I was always the feminine one, but they did the drag, but there was always something different about me. And then when I started making the transition and started taking the hormones and I didn't tell them, I didn't, God knows, because I didn't know how they were, you know, going to take it and stuff, you know. And when, and I, they started noticing the physical changes in my skin and, the, you know, and they said, what are you doing? I'm not doing nothing. What are you talking about? You know, so, so, and then they found out, you know, and they were not very happy because the, the guys that I did hang on with, they were professionals. They were teachers. One was a, a pharmacist at the veteran um, hospital. One of them had a catering service with their family, you know, so they were very professional. And one of them made the comment, who said, who do you think is going to hire you looking like that? Of course, I could no longer teach because I was going through my transition then. Of course, it was not going to have a person of trans experience teaching the kids, especially around that time because I graduated in 81. So I was teaching like in 82, 83. And I, no. So, and then of course, when I did no longer teach, I had to find some avenue to support myself. And that was through drag and find myself doing shows. And of course, I had to, um, I'm not going to say I had to, but I felt I did because I needed some way to support myself. So I became that sex worker. You know, and so doing the shows and doing being, you know, a sex worker at that time. And then I started competing in this competition called Miss Louisiana. Um, that was my first national title, but there were other competitions within the area I would compete for. And I remember, oh my God, there was this pageant in New Orleans called Miss Vucare. And I was the only black contestant. And I was like five minutes late. They would not let me. 
into the competition. So what I did was for every category, I was supposed to change clothes. I went into the in the restroom and I changed clothes and I walked around the room. <laughs> I just walked around the room. <laughs> no, Mm-mm. no, but I just couldn't. I just could not compete because I was late. You know, that's fair. You know, that's fair. You know, but they didn't start on time anyway. So you know, I still had time to get ready for that first category. And then from there, I went to other pageants in Miss um, Louisiana. I went there twice. And it was like my first time competing on a national level, national level, had no clue what I was doing. So the second time I went, that's when I won. Because I, you know, then I went to Miss Gay Yusufe, first time, made the top five, got best overall interview. So, yeah. And I started off my pageant phase. So I competed for so many years at Miss Survey and Miss Continental and all those different things like that. And when you had a national competition with so many different people there and you would do promotion pictures and you would have your name and your telephone, you would just pass those out and leave those. And you'd be lucky to get a call. Someone would call you and say, hey, I have a booking. It's such and such a date, you know, and are you willing to come down to Florida, Alabama, any place like that, you know, anything that was under six hours, I would drive, but anything over, no, boo, fly me, you know, fly, you know, I just, yeah. But, um, yeah, it, it opened many avenues for me. And even when one of the shows, they had a fashion show and they had the female impersonators, whether do I illusions, I'm sorry, whether do I illusions. And I did the Diana Ross. And then a few days later, the, I forgot what the person was called, but they worked at Canal Place in Saks Fifth Avenue. They had this modeling troupe called The Mannequins. And so she called me and asked me to come into the store. And so I said, well, what is this all about? So I went into the store and she said, well, have you thought about modeling? I said, well, no, I haven't. So that's how I started modeling for Canal Place in Saks Fifth Avenue because they saw me, you know, in that, um, at that, at, at that event, and so when I said, you know what, I think she could be good at selling our clothes. And I did. I did that for a while. But I'll never forget when we had, we went on hiatus. And when we went on hiatus, it's like a few months. And I decided to get my breasts done. Oh, my God. So after the hiatus, we went back to work. And she looked at me. She said, what have you done? I said, what do you mean? What have I done? She said this, you know, because I was that perfect size zero two, you know. And when you have a model, you, know, you catch them very flat chested to wear the plunging neckline. She said, you can't wear that anymore. You're going to look vulgar. I said, okay, no problem, you know, but I didn't lose my position. You know, I still was able to model for them, but I couldn't wear. Mm-hmm. As a model of women's clothes, they really, like, I shouldn't have breasts. I shouldn't have had, yeah. What, what was the process like at that time of like getting access to hormones and cancer? Is that a whole? It was very underground, you know, um, because we didn't have anyone to help us navigate through this process, you know. So everything was the word of mouth, you know. Well, girl, I found this doctor, and going to this doctor, you know, it was like really shady because they never did any blood work, like an endocrinologist would do to text your level, you know. He said, "What do you want?" You know. Write up a prescription. You go to this drugstore, and I guess they had a, a um, a network with the pharmacist and the doctor. He write a prescription. You go to this particular doctor, and they would just prescribe you the hormones and the shots and the pills or whatever you wanted. 
you know, and it was like, we didn't know what we were doing. Was it expensive? Not as expensive as it is today, you know, um, and I would think to, and then a lot of the girls, see, for instance, if you did not have a doctor or you didn't want to go to the doctor, some of the girls who got this, I don't know, they were on this program where they were able to get the hormones at a cheaper level, a cheaper dollar amount, and they would sell it to you for that cheaper amount. So everything was like black market, you know, um, which was very dangerous when you think about it, you know, because like I said, there was no one to monitor your blood. You could have overdosed, you know, you could have fried your liver or whatever, you know, by taking that and stuff. But so much has changed throughout the years now, you know, and so many doctors or, or, um, and so many resources are available for those young people of trans experience at a younger age and stuff than they were back in my time. Like you didn't experience any, as far as you know, like health effects from mm-hmm. the black market. Thank God. No. So I've never had any health issues at all with it. And I'm so glad that I'm able to live this time because I'm able to help these younger younger people, you know, who are transitioning to help them navigate because I didn't have anyone to help me through this process and was just learn as I go, you know, you know, and I lived through that, um, the AIDS epidemic. I lived through that. I mean, I've had friends who didn't make it to 25. Oh my God. It was very sad when one of my girlfriends was killed because some guy picked her up and he thought she was a woman. And of course, you know, as you can see, this is happening today still. Um, and I went to her to view her body and I'm like, looking like I'm at the right place because I've never seen her as a man and her parents were not going to allow her to be, you know, put away as this woman that, you know, that I knew. And I was like, oh my God, that would just hurt me so bad because I just never saw, you know, and never perceived them as being anything but a woman. Natasha, Natasha, she was Beautiful. I mean, absolutely stunning. I remember her. But like, you know, at that time, that's what parents did. That's what, you know, you know, they didn't understand at all. But I am so thankful that I was able to move back home with my parents because they got to understand me and to see me as this woman. I had to move back home for a period of time because I got arrested for prostitution. Go figure. But anyway, they came and got me out of jail because if I'd have called in my friends, they would want their money back tomorrow so I had to go back on the street to get them their money so I said you know what I'm, I don't want to do this this is not what God created my life to be and I called my parents and they came and got me out of jail and they said you know what you do not have to live like this come home and I left my apartment I left everything I owned and moved back home with my family and it was the best thing that ever could happen to me because I had an opportunity to move back home to help my parents do this transition while I was transitioning. So it was a transition for all of us at that time. Um, and my mom, having conversations with her, she remembered those things. And, you know, she remembered, oh, my God, um, I remember as a child and we were playing outside and kept on calling me a little girl, little girl. And she's looking out like, who are they talking about? Who are they talking about? And I remember my mom pulling my pants down in front of all these people. This is not a little girl. She remembered all of that. She remembered all of that. And I did too. I did too. Thank, um, thank God I'm not damaged. But, 
oh, yeah, I remember that. I remember this. And she remembers it as well. And she said she wished she knew how to help me. But at that time, you know, they did the best they could. You know, it was all foreign to many people. And I do not fault my parents because they did the best they could. There was no way to. I didn't even know how to navigate through this transition. So I need to say my parents. And I remember it was very difficult for my parents to kind of accept that as time went on, she never would introduce me as her son or her daughter. I was one of her children. I was so happy with that, you know, because when you're used to having and raising a son for so many years, it's just hard to flip that script to call and this is my daughter. So when I heard her introduce me as one of her children, got a girl mom. Yeah. She sounds awesome. She was. She was. Very, very special. My dad was too. That was too. A very supportive family as they got to know. Once I knew I had their support, I could do anything. This episode was story produced and edited by Rachel Karp with final mixing by me, Sarah Gabrielli. Our line producer is Jen McGinnity and our theme song is by Joey Freeman. You can find us at our website, cruisingpod.com, on social media at cruisingpod and at patreon.com slash cruisingpod. Listen to Cruising wherever you get your podcasts.